I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 1. For those that are visiting, we've engaged ourselves in a study of this very important and practical book some weeks ago now. We looked at the inspired penmen of Proverbs, and we considered Solomon and his unparalleled wisdom. And then we began to look at the prologue, or the preface, to the book of Proverbs. Here in the first nine verses, we see our need for wisdom and the fear of the Lord. We see the primary persons that are addressed in the book of Proverbs, that is the young and the naive the practical purpose of Proverbs is given in verses 2 through 4, the precious promise offered in verses 5 and 6, and then the pious principle we've been considering, which is essential to true wisdom, in verse 7, and that is the fear of God. Let's read the first nine verses of Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Let's pray. Lord, might those very things that we have considered this morning in these first verses of Proverbs, be our portion today. Indeed, all of us are, are in need of wisdom and instruction. We need understanding. We need to know your way, your will, uh, to know your mind, and to, uh, to direct our lives according to the wisdom that's found in your word. And so we pray that you would hear our cry this morning that you would open our hearts to receive the engrafted word which is able to save our souls, that you would work in us the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom and understanding, that we would come to know you and to know you better this morning. O oh Lord, hear us. We desire to become more conformed, as we've already prayed, to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living Word. He is the incarnate Word of God. And therefore, we pray that you would take the written Word this morning, write it upon our hearts, form us and fashion us more and more into the image who is the way, the truth, and the life. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to come back to our study of the fear of the Lord. That's the pious principle that's essential to true wisdom. And we answered the question in an earlier message, what is the fear of the Lord? And there are various elements which are essential to the fear of the Lord. 
First of all, it's grounded in reverence for the majesty of God. We're going to consider more of that later. Secondly, it's expressed in filial, that is, childlike obedience to the revealed will of God. And therefore, flowing out of that, it produces a careful attention to pleasing God and a dread of offending Him. And then we, last time and the week before, considered privileges, privileges that belong to those who fear the Lord. And we saw that those who fear the Lord, first of all, enjoy His abounding, unfailing, fatherly compassion and covenant love, especially as we looked at Psalm 103. And then we saw that those who fear the Lord enjoy the company of others who fear the Lord. They want to be with other God-fearing people. Further, they may stand boldly for a righteous cause. Those who fear the Lord are, are the righteous who are bold as a lion. Furthermore, those who fear the Lord find it a great preservative against sin, even as we heard this morning in the scripture reading from 1 John. And then the fear of the Lord enables someone to be calm when life seems unfair. We can entrust our souls to the God who works all things after the counsel of His will. In working all things after the counsel of His will, He works all things together for the good of His people. Furthermore, we saw that those who fear the Lord are promised God's help and protection. God delights to protect and to provide for those who fear Him. And again, the fear, those who fear the Lord are promised His instruction and guidance. We see that right here in Proverbs chapter 1. That we are not to lean upon our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct our paths. And those who fear the Lord are enabled to triumph amidst the severest tests of their faith. And we saw how that was true, especially of Abraham in his life and the great test that God put before him. And then we noted that those who fear the Lord enjoy confidential communion with him. The secret of the Lord belongs to those who fear him. He unbosoms himself and shows them things that those who are carnal and careless he doesn't show. And then we saw that those who fear the Lord tend to live longer lives than those who don't. Those who follow Him, who follow the principles of His Word, tend to live longer than those who snub the Lord and His law and run in the ways of disobedience. Now this morning we come to consider duties. What are the duties required of those who fear the Lord? And I have really only three, three essential duties of those who would fear the Lord. Now, the Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord is both a duty and a grace. God must enable us to fear Him, and we have the duty to fear Him as a result. And therefore, we seriously err if we regard the fear of the Lord as either optional for the Christian or exceptional for just some Christians. All Christians fear the Lord. We don't fear the Lord as much as we should, but if we are true Christians, we live in His fear. In fact, the fear of the Lord is an essential mark of all true Christians. 
The prophet Jeremiah promises that all of God's new covenant people will be characterized by the fear of God. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. We persevere by the grace of God through the fear of God. And the implication is here that we will fear God all of our days. But like all graces of the Spirit, the grace of the fear of God is to be cultivated. We're commanded by the Apostle Peter at the end of the third chapter of his second epistle that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you can tell little children that he needs to grow. He's, he's four foot two. And you say, well, I want you to be five foot seven by the end of the week. Well, that's just not going to happen. But God can tell us to grow and certainly those who are true Christians who are four foot seven in their own estimation, they want to be five foot, they want to be, they want to be giants in the faith, and therefore they go and use the means that God has given to that end. So if you would fear the Lord, first of all, three things, get an undivided heart. Psalm 86 and verse 11, Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. You see, a man who fears the Lord has a single heart, and therefore he wants to fear God above all things, and he knows that he needs a united heart to do so. The Bible teaches, furthermore, that a person, a man, a woman with a single heart speaks with an honest tongue. And brethren, this is rare in the world today. And David contrasts him with the common wicked man who has a double heart. He says one thing to one person, says another thing to somebody else. He thinks one thing in his heart, and he says one, another thing with his mouth. He has a double tongue. That is, he speaks with lies and flattery. Psalm 12, verses 1 and 2 Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with, here we go, a double heart that they speak. Their heart is divided. It's not unified. It's not single. It doesn't have one purpose. Some who profess faith in Christ may have a double or divided heart. James warns the one whom he describes as a double-minded man who is divided between God and the world. He's, to use the language of the prophet, he hesitates between two opinions. And because his focus is not fixed solely upon serving the Lord, James says that he is unstable in all his ways. A double-minded man is hither and yon. He's not focused upon the things of the Lord. He's easily distracted. His heart is divided, therefore his hands are dirty. Nothing less than radical heart surgery is prescribed by God if he would draw near to God he must have a united heart. James 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. 
purify your hearts. Notice, you double-minded. It's the double-minded that don't walk close to God. It's those double-minded people that have filthy hands and unclean hearts. The Old Testament contains many illustrations of the single or undivided heart, an example of a double or divided heart as well. And we read that the armies of the various tribes of Israel met in Hebron with an undivided heart, we read in 1 Chronicles 12, with a perfect heart and of one mind to install David king of Israel. They were like one man with one heart, undivided. All their focus was on putting this man after God's own heart upon the throne of Israel. David knew that God who searches the heart must be served with a whole heart. And so the king after God's own heart exhorted and warned his son Solomon to serve God wholeheartedly as king. First Chronicles chapter 28 in verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, notice first of all, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart. And we're going to see this. We must know God before we will fear God and before we will serve him with a whole heart. And he says, a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him... He will let you find him, but if you forsake him, he will reject you forever, even as he did Saul. God's people happily and wholeheartedly supplied materials for the construction of the temple. Here we see another example of wholeheartedness. First Chronicles 29 and verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly. It flowed out of their hearts. They, they took what they had and they gave it for the building of the temple. For they made their offering to the Lord, notice, with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. We read that later all the tribes of Judah under King Asa demonstrated wholeheartedness when they renewed their covenant with God after He had granted them a miraculous victory over their enemy. A million-man army came up against them, and God destroyed them with but a handful. They wholeheartedly sought the Lord, and they found Him. Second Chronicles 15 and verse 15, And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart. You see, they came together and they, they, they made a covenant with God. And they sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly and he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. God blesses those with a single heart. Asa, who was neither perfect as a man, nor in his rule as a king, could still be described by God as serving him with his whole heart, his whole life. I like the way the NIV puts Second Chronicles 15 and verse 17. 
Although he, that is Asa, did not remove the high places from Israel, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. See, God doesn't expect absolute perfection before he says that we are serving him with fear. But we meet a striking contrast with a half-hearted, compromising King Amaziah, who is not fully committed to doing right before the Lord. Second Chronicles 25 and verse 2. And he did right in the sight of of the Lord, and we might wish full stop. No, there's a qualification here. He did it in half measures. He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with his whole heart. There were some areas of reserve in his life that he didn't give completely to God in his service. He had compartments in his life that he didn't give to God. King Amaziah's heart did not belong, you see, to Jehovah alone. He also bowed down before and offered incense to the gods of the very peoples that he conquered. Why would you offer sacrifices to the people that you conquered? Their gods didn't help them. Why would you bow down to them? You see, he mixed the worship of pagan gods with the worship of Jehovah. He was divided in his heart. Let me say it again, brethren. Sinlessness is not required for a heart fully devoted to God. We witness in godly King Hezekiah, like Asa before him, a life devoted to God's truth and doing what is right in his sight with his whole heart. And so he pleaded that before God who knew his heart. Second Kings 20 and verse 3, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in thy sight. Do you think he could lie to God, pull the wool over God's eyes and say these things about himself if God didn't know that they were true? And we read Hezekiah's life. Hezekiah made some serious blunders. He sinned. And yet he could say, at the end of the day, I've served you with a whole heart. Indeed, even David, with all of his sins, ultimately, he was a man after God's own heart. Jeremiah warned God's apostate nation that the Lord must have their whole heart, not only in serving Him, but also in repenting of their sin. Brethren, half-hearted repentance is not repentance, since true repentance requires a decisive break with sin. Jesus put it this way. Gouge out your right eye, cut off your right hand, and do what? Throw them far from you. God requires nothing less than a decisive break with sin. And this wholehearted repentance God must give. Jeremiah 24 and verse 7. And I will give them a new, or give them a heart to know me. You see, we must again know God before we will fear him. And I will give them, he must do it. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. That's covenant language. For they will return to me with their whole heart. We see this later. 
under Cyrus. In the returning of the repentant remnant under Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's return to David's request in Psalm 86 and verse 11. He's asking God for an undivided heart that he may give undistracted attention to learning and doing the will of God. David asks two things of the Lord. He asks him to instruct him in his way, that is God's way, teach me thy way. And secondly, he asks for a, a united heart that he might rightly reverence the Lord. Unite my heart to fear thy name. And God's name, of course, stands for who he is. All that the Bible teaches about God, his truth and his ways. And thirdly, he expresses a wise resolution if God would grant him his two requests. I will walk in thy truth. David says, in effect, give me a single heart to fear you that I may know your will and do it. Notice two plain implications from David's prayer for a united heart. First, his prayer implies that God demands, deserves, and delights in our reverence to fear Him. The fear of God requires nothing less than an undivided, that is, a united heart, so that we may give our full concentration, the full concentration of our mind and our heart and our will to pleasing God. And secondly, his prayer suggests that only God can produce this reverence in us. Give me a single heart. Give me an undivided heart. We can't work it up. God must work it in us. So let us be persuaded, brethren, that all our holy thoughts and pure desires proceed only from God's Spirit working in us to will and to do of His good pleasure, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. And may this prayer be ever on our lips. And I suggest to you that we who are Christians have no greater need than this, an undivided heart to fear God. Proverbs 9 and verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We must know Him if we would fear Him, and we must fear Him if we would be understanding and know His way and will and do it. What we need above all things is a united heart if we would learn and do the will of God. Calvin, the wise reformer, sees our spiritual problem, which only a united heart is able to correct in his comments on David's words in the psalm. This word unite contains an implicit contrast, which has not been sufficiently attended to between the unwavering purpose with which the heart of man cleaves to God when it is under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the anxiety with which it is distracted and tossed so long as it fluctuates amidst its own affections. It is therefore absolutely necessary that the faithful, after having learned what is right, should firmly and cordially embrace it, that the heart may not break forth in impetuous desire after unhallowed lusts, 
Go back to being divided then. Not being intent on one purpose, but being divided and going after things that God has forbidden. Calvin says, thus, in the word unite, there is a very beautiful metaphor conveying the idea that the heart of man is full of tumult, drawn apart, and as it were, scattered about in fragments until God has gathered it to himself and holds it together in a state of steadfast and persevering obedience. You see, brethren, we must fear God if we would faithfully follow God, and we must know God if we would fear him. Israel was slow to learn this. Right after receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, with all of the terrible sights and sounds, the shaking of the ground beneath their feet, the children of Israel seemed to think that obeying God's commandments would be easy. You see, no sooner than the awesome sights and signs of God's terrible presence had faded when His people rashly promised the Lord full obedience. They were all worked up in their emotion. This is our great God. We will give Him unfailing, unstinted obedience. They said to Moses, Speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. But a heartbeat away, we hear an almost divine sigh when the Lord responds. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. A heart divided between hearing God's word and then doing our own will has ever been the temptation of God's people. For hundreds of years, Israel heard God's prophets reproving them for their disobedience, for their double-mindedness, their half-heartedness. And even when in Babylonian captivity for their rebellion, they sat attentively under Ezekiel's sermons, still professing a desire to learn God's will while remaining committed to their sins. They said one thing with their mouth, and they held other things within their heart. They professed to want to obey, but they lived in disobedience. God says of them in Ezekiel 33, 31, And they come to you, Ezekiel, as people come, and sit before you as my people, and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. They say one thing with their lips, and their feet go a different direction. There's a word for this. It's called hypocrisy. Since the Lord is God alone, we must fear and serve Him alone. Not serve other gods and not serve the gods of our own hearts, our lusts. And therefore we play the hypocrite when we say one thing with our lips and another thing with our feet, when we learn the will of God and then pursue our own will. 
The sole cure for this spiritual schizophrenia, brethren, is the fear of the Lord. We need an undivided heart to fear God. Only as our hearts are fixed decidedly upon pleasing the Lord will we be attentive to learn His way and then do His will. And so if we're not animated by the fear of God, we may hear many sermons and be no better following our own lusts and not the way of God. You see, the fear of the Lord is essential to living the Christian life. The Apostle Paul describes the root of our struggle with a divided heart in terms of the war between the flesh and the spirit. Both principles are active in God's people, and, we, and both of them vie for dominance. The Apostle speaks pointedly of this war in two places especially. First of all, and we're not going to read the whole of, the, of that section in Romans chapter 7, but verses 18 through 21. For Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. The flesh is only evil. For the wishing is present in me, that is because of the regenerate dynamic of the Holy Spirit within him. He didn't have that wishing before. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. And that is the struggle that we're going to have from the day of the new birth to the day of our death in Christ. It's not going to, it's not going to quit. We're not going to somehow ascend to 37,000 feet and fly above all the temptations unscathed. Paul puts it very succinctly in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. And he gives us the remedy. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. They are dead set enemies against each other, so that you may not do the things that you please. See, a carnal man, he does those things which are evil in God's sight, and he wants to do more of them, and he kind of wishes that providence would favor his evil desires. No, but a true Christian who has remaining sin under the authority of reigning grace, he still struggles with these things, but he doesn't give himself to his sin like he once did. What the psalmist and the apostle describe in different language is the same spiritual struggle experienced by all God's true people. The psalmist describes this struggle in terms of the need for a united heart, the apostle in terms of conflicting and competing desires, one righteous, the other wicked, one expressed by the flesh, the other by the Spirit. You see, only as we walk in the Spirit are we able to walk with a united heart in the fear of God, intent on one thing, learning to do the will of God, empowered by the Spirit to do it. We must be taught by grace to say 
with David in another place. Psalm 57 and verse 7, My heart is steadfast, or as it says in the King James, My heart is fixed. O God, my heart is fixed. And only by your grace is it able to be. Only with the united heart are we able to say, or to, to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. Only then are we able to eat and drink and do all things to the glory of God. Only then are we able to consciously do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him through God the Father and all our ways to acknowledge Him, to set the Lord continually before our eyes because He is at our right hand that we will not be shaken. Only God enables us to do these things. So what duties are required of those who would fear the Lord? If you would fear the Lord, get an undivided heart. Secondly, more briefly, if you would fear the Lord, utilize the means God has appointed to that end. The primary means for learning the fear of God is the Word of God, a commitment to the Word of God. In fact, David speaks of the Word of God as that which inspires the fear of God. He even exchanges the word fear for word. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. You see, the word of God is God's great cleansing agent. It cleanses our foul hearts. This is because the word of God is true. Every part of it is righteous and is everlasting as God is everlasting. David says in Psalm 119, verse 160, The sum of thy word is truth. That is it, the, the truth of God in its totality. And then he, he speaks of it in its individual parts. And every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. It's true in its total. It's true in all its minutiae. The Word of God is a chief means appointed for us to learn the fear of God. Let's look at three points here as we consider how we might grow in the fear of God. First of all, God has appointed our careful, believing attendance upon the public means of grace, of growing and learning the fear of God, preaching, and teaching of His Word. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 12 and 13. God said to Moses, Assemble the people, the men and the women, and children, and the alien who is in your town. Why? In order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God, and be careful to observe all the words of His law. And their children, who have not known, will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you're about to cross the Jordan to possess. God promises to be specially present wherever His people gather in His name on His day to hear His word. Brethren, imagine... That God is in this place. Because He is here. He promises to be wherever His people, as few as two or three, gather together in His name. If 
A sense of his presence should produce a holy fear in our hearts when we meet. And even if we don't get the oohs and the ahs, we should recognize that he is here and act upon our faith according to his promise because he's here. We read in Psalm 89 in verse 7, A God greatly feared in the counsel of his holy ones, while he's feared in heaven amongst the angels, and awesome above all those who are around him. And that, that should be the disposition that we have as his people. We should fear him because he's here. He has two places of his special presence, in heaven always, and with his people when they gather in the name of his Son on his day. And I suggest to you, brethren, the antidote for the irreverence and even silliness that plagues many worship services today is a healthy fear of the Lord. Spurgeon comments upon the words of the psalmist here in Psalm 89 and verse 7. He says, The holiest tremble in the presence of the thrice holy one. Their familiarity is seasoned with the profoundest awe. Perfect love casts out the fear which hath torment and works in lieu thereof that other fear which is akin to joy unutterable. How reverent should our worship be! Where angels veil their faces, men should surely bow in lowest fashion. Sin is akin to presumptuous boldness, but holiness is sister to holy fear. And to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. The nearer they are, the more they adore. If mere creatures were struck with awe, the courtiers and favorites of heaven must be yet more reverent in the presence of the great king. God's children are those who most earnestly pray, Hallowed be thy name. Irreverence is rebellion. Thoughts of the covenant of grace tend to create a deep awe of God. They draw us close to him, and the more he glories, the more his glories are seen by us in that nearer access, the more humbly we prostrate ourselves before his majesty. It's just not this flippant, casual, come as you are attitude when we come into the presence of God. We're coming into the presence of the three times Holy One before angels veil their faces and bow. They cover their feet and don't even stand in His presence. Notice, second, the family means God is appointed for learning the fear of God. Parents are to teach their children to fear the Lord. We, we saw, this, saw this in Deuteronomy. It's stated very plainly in Psalm 34 and verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Parents, you are commanded to teach your children the fear of the Lord. Let me just say here that your children can tell what God means to you. They can tell it in your behavior. They can tell it in your instruction. They can tell it in your tone of voice, in your offhanded comments about other Christians, about the church, about the pastor, about the worship of God. They, they pick these things up. You know, their, their radar are very long. Do you want them to fear the Lord? Then teach them God's word and reinforce 
your instruction by your principled obedience to that word. Live it, lip it, love it. You plainly teach your children to fear God by your joyful and reverent commitment to giving yourself to God's worship each Lord's Day. Now, these things we'll consider more in depth in a future message. <clears throat> Notice thirdly, the personal or the, the public means, the family means, and the private means. The private means God has appointed for learning the fear of God. And that's daily time alone with the Lord. It encourages your reverence for Him. As you bow before Him, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. You pick up His Bible and you begin to read it. And you say, Lord, teach me out of your law. I want to meditate upon your instruction. And then you pray in response to the things that God shows you. He, he grows you as you do that in your love and fear for Him. We shouldn't be content to just come here to be fed the Word of God on the Lord's Day alone. We need to be feeding throughout the week with our families and in our closets. Brethren, we must jealously guard our time with Him, even as Mary did when tempted to busy herself with pressing but less important tasks. The Lord richly repaid her for her undistracted devotion as she sat at the feet of Christ in rapt attention. To him. Time spent in the Lord's presence quickens a holy fear of God, even as it deadens us to the influence of the world, clamoring for our undivided attention. It quiets our hearts, it reorients our perspective so that we may walk in His fear, pondering His eternal truth and being prepared for the coming of the eternal day. Finally, We've seen if you'd fear the Lord, get an undivided heart, utilize the means God has appointed. If you would fear the Lord, we come right back here to the basics. You must first know the Lord. You must first know Him. You don't fear Him and then know Him. You know Him and then because you know Him, you fear Him. Paul in Romans teaches that each person born into this world has a constitutional knowledge of God, made in His image. They know Him as Creator, but they don't worship and serve Him as Creator. They worship and serve their own gods. They worship themselves. They worship their bodies. They worship everything but the one true and living God. They don't give Him thanks or glorify Him as God. And as a result, their foolish heart is darkened. And Paul says at the end of the condemnation of both Jew and Gentile in Romans chapter 3, the concluding statement is that there's no fear of God before their eyes. Only those who know the Lord fear the Lord. And until then, we may be very religious, but we are nothing more than splendid formalists. In fact, until you become a Christian, you suppress the truth you know about God in unrighteousness. You see, there is a world, there is an eternity of difference between knowing about God or knowing Him as your Creator and knowing Him truly, knowing Him as your Savior. All men know Him as Creator, but only the redeemed know Him as Savior. 
God must first open your eyes and give you new, a new heart before you will truly know Him, and in knowing Him, fear Him. So Solomon teaches, Proverbs 9 and verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord go together. First we, we know Him, and then we fear Him. John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. You see, if we are to truly fear God, He must give us a new heart. He must cause us to be born again. In the new birth, God removes our stony heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh by which we come to know and fear Him. And brethren, this is true replacement theology. God must replace our, our stony hearts with fleshy hearts. And as we noted, this heart replacement is promised to all who are under the new covenant, that is, to all Christians. From the passage I quoted at the beginning of the message, Jeremiah and uh, chapters 31 and chapter 32. First of all, Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them before it was external to them. Now it's going to be in them. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's covenant language. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. You see, very few in Old Covenant Israel really knew the Lord. And those that did exhorted their neighbors that didn't to know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It's all founded upon the work of Christ. Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 40. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that, that I will not turn away from to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. God must reveal Himself in grace to us before we'll come to fear Him. Let me close this, this morning by suggesting that you may be very religious and not know the Lord. That's true. You see, the problem is that you are not a true Christian. You've never come to know God through faith in His Son. And the Bible teaches that there are many such people that attend Christ's churches. You may sing hymns and pray and listen to preaching, all of which are good things to do and you should do them, and yet not know the Lord. Such was the cause, the case with most Israelites in Jeremiah's day, and so in our day, many people have a form of religion without its power. They have a name that they are alive, but they are spiritually dead. You see, just calling ourselves Christians doesn't make us Christians. 
We need the grace of God to open our eyes so that we might see the kingdom of God. He must give us the gifts of faith and repentance to trust Christ and turn away from our sins. He must renew us by the Holy Spirit. In other words, He must make us Christians. We must come to know Him by His grace. So job one for you this morning is not to fear the Lord, but to come to know the Lord. And when you know Him, you'll truly fear Him. Let me ask you, are you numbered among the God-fearing? In other words, do you know the Lord? And how do you know that you know the Lord? Do these marks of a true Christian mark you? Remember that many will say on the day that Jesus returns, after trotting out all of their religious duties and devotions, I did this and I did that and I did the other thing. And what is Jesus going to say to them? Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. I never knew you. So the final question this morning is, does Jesus know you? And if he knows you, you know him. And may he grant you that grace to come to know him even this day. Let's pray. Our Father, who is adequate for these things? The same word is to some a savor of life, and to others a savor of death. Oh, how we pray that your word would be a savor of life to those who are yet dead in trespasses and sins. That you would speak a quickening word. You would raise the spiritually dead to eternal life in Jesus Christ. Oh, how we pray that there would be lives that would be changed by your grace this day delivered as brands plucked from the burning, that they would be made children of God. Oh Lord, help us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith. If we are your true people, oh Lord, give us that desire, that unquenchable desire to have an undivided heart, and to that end to utilize the means that you have appointed to demonstrate that we know and love and serve and fear the Lord. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.